Hi everybody, uh, it, welcome to Zooming In on ID, a new series of uh, short podcasts that give us the chance to get to know some of the scholars in LSE's International Development Department. I'm your host Duncan Green and a very special treat today with me is ID Professor Nyla Kabir. Nyla is the uh, Professor of Gender and Development. Her research interests are massive but they include gender, poverty, social exclusion, labour markets and livelihoods, social protection and citizenship and her main focus of her work is on South and Southeast Asia. Welcome Nyla. Thank you. So tell us a bit about yourself. How did you end up here? How did you start off? How did you become an academic? Okay. Um, well, you know, I was born in India and brought up in India and Bangladesh and I came here uh, to do my first degree, my undergraduate degree. And it was around in the 70s and I was very keen on coming to LSE because there was a lot of protest going on and it looked like an exciting place to be. And I was fortunate enough to actually be accepted at the LSE. So I did my, my, all my degrees up to my PhD at LSE and I developed an interest simultaneously in the classroom in development studies and outside the classroom in feminism. Uh, so when I finished my PhD, I went off to the Institute of Development Studies, Sussex, where I was able to bring these two, you know, passions of my life together, uh, working on feminism in development, in development studies. Uh, and I was there for many years, 20 years. And then I think the commuting, I've always lived in London, got too much. And I was very pleased that uh, LSE was advertising for someone on gender, globalization and development. And that's how I ended up here. What are, what are you in disciplinary terms? Are you an economist? Uh, well, no, no, no economist who thinks of themselves as an economist would call me an economist. I did do my uh, first and second, my undergraduate and graduate degrees in mainstream neoclassical economics. But it's when I started to do my PhD, which was on population, and I was asked to read Gary Becker's model of why people have children. That I thought well, enough is enough, you know, this has absolutely nothing to do with how people decide to have children. And I left the economics department and went into population studies, which is an interdisciplinary department. And since then, I think I think of myself as someone whose training in economics hasn't disappeared. You know, the questions I ask are economic questions about economic issues. But the answers and explanations that I give are interdisciplinary. So I draw from anthropology, from economics, from sociology, philosophy, politics, whatever seems useful to get at the kind of explanations I want to, to find out about. And in, in the academic world, which you know, you've navigated for decades and are you know, massively respected in, is being interdisciplinary in that way you described seen as a good thing or do people raise eyebrows and think you're some kind of mongrel? <laughs> well it depends on how narrow-minded you are doesn't it? I mean there are people who um, are very jealous of the boundaries of their disciplines and are very um, hostile to the idea that you could mix and match right? So obviously those people think I'm kind of an outcast you know a, a transgressor of all disciplinary boundaries but I think, frankly, people who are interested in the real world and want to understand the answers to some of the problems that are facing us in the real world 
realize you cannot do it through a, a single you know, monodisciplinary bio, uh, lens. You have to draw on the wisdom of other disciplines and see how you can meld them together so that it isn't a mongrel explanation, but it is a fused, a coherent explanation. And I think that's what I try and do. So yes, a lot of eyebrows get raised by the kinds of people you would imagine, but a lot of people welcome the freedom of looking for answers in the right places. Okay. Now, you know, as I, as I said in the introduction, you've got an enormous range of research interests, but I think you, dis, when we talked before this, you said you'd quite like to focus on social protection. So maybe you could start off by telling us what social protection is, because it's one of those phrases which is bandied about in the aid and development sector. I'm not sure anyone well, knows what it is. Before I do that, I think I'd like to explain how I got to social protection. Feel free. I don't think it makes sense to just talk about social protection in the abstract. And the, the, the way I got to it is through my interest in labor markets and livelihoods. So if you like, the broader interest that I have is about intersecting inequalities in the economy. And to understand intersecting inequalities from the perspective of those at the bottom of all these different kinds of inequalities of caste, gender, class, and so on, the labor market is a very good entry point because it's about life, you know, your life depends on your livelihoods. And understanding how people um, earn a livelihood when they have very little at their disposal, either human capital or material capital or whatever, uh, you have to look at how they manage their labor power, because that's the only asset they have. And of course, when you're looking at it from the bottom of this hierarchy of inequalities, uh, you understand how inequalities work in the economy. And you understand why certain groups of people, men and women, but women to a much greater extent, who come from marginalized groups, the very poor, the lowest caste, ethnically deprived and so on, why the kinds of jobs they have uh, do not guarantee them security. Uh, they just survive from day to day and if there's any kind of crisis, they will go under. Uh, they will have to sell off whatever they have, they will have to send their children into child labor, they will have the elderly to work, etc. So irreversible forms of damage happen. If anything happens to you, either you as an individual because your breadwinner falls ill, or you as a collective because there's a generalized crisis. So it seemed to me that a lot of the reasons, many of the reasons why people aren't able to fight for a better living or more rights at work is because they have no bargaining power. And they have no bargaining power because they're dependent day to day on selling their labor for survival. And that's where the issue of some kind of a safety net comes in. You know, if you can have a basic safety net below which people cannot fall, then the likelihood of them being able to bargain for slightly higher wages or uh, you know, some sort of safety at work becomes more possible. So my interest in social protection came about because in studying inequalities in the labor market, you're studying injustice, right? Economic injustice. And in terms of what we can do about that, I think I've gone around along two different strands, two different tracks. One is what is the policy alternatives? What could we do by way of policy? And the other is what can we do by way of collective action? How can people organize? 
you know, for more rights at work? And then policy, what can policymakers do to make markets work more fairly for, for people? And that's why social protection is actually a bridge between those two forms of public action. Because you need that basic safety net to fight for your rights, but you're not gonna get that safety net until you're able to fight for it. So, you know, collective action and social policy come together in the whole issue of social protection. And when I look at what I've written, I see myself going from studying how inequalities work in the labor market to studying how informal workers organize. And one of the things in how informal workers organize, and I ask activists and academics from different parts of the world to write about their experiences, what, and it's, it's a book called um, Beyond the Weapons of the Week. And what is very interesting about these different groups, wherever they are, sex workers, domestic workers, rape pickers, etc., is one of the first things they demand because they don't have access to unions, they have to organize themselves. One of the first things they demand are forms of social protection, you know, pension for themselves, schooling for their children, um, occupational safety, and so on. And once they get that form of social protection, then they are able to mobilize for more political rights, um, you know, holding employers accountable and so on. So I see social protection as a bridge between policy initiatives and collective action. Okay, that's great. Um, and then you wanted to know what it is. But well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind. Okay. <laughs> you know, in this country, you used to have a welfare state, right? And the welfare state had uh, provisions for people when they fell ill, when they were unemployed, when they were old and so on. Then we got neoliberal policies. And just as the developing world was beginning to build its welfare state, along comes structural adjustment and people have to cut back on public expenditure and so on. But then it became very clear that structural adjustment was not you know, benefiting everybody. And the idea of safety nets came in and safety nets were intended as uh, either you know, cash transfers or employment guarantees to hold people up when their livelihoods collapsed. So, that, from that very narrow beginning, we have started to build up a whole infrastructure of provisions, different in different countries. It can be cash transfers, it can be employment guarantees, it can be affordable housing and so on. But given that we've not been able to develop a welfare state and broad-based social policies, social protection, I think, was the thin end of a wedge to get in there and start to build some kind of basic social provisioning for all. So it doesn't boil down to any single you know, insurance or transfers. It boils down to a collection of initiatives that are intended to help people cope with crisis and build their way out of crisis. So you see it as a kind of welfare state by stealth? Yes, yes. Okay. So, and so there's a big argument about, you know, residual social protection, you know, means tested and so on, and universal social protection. And to try and overcome that dichotomy, we use a more acceptable terminology like broad-based social protection or inclusive social protection. 
but really what we're trying to build is a fair social floor from which people can tackle the challenge of earning a living when they have very little else. Okay, so let's let's fast forward and go go into COVID because COVID's clearly oh. shown the need for safety nets of all kinds, and, and sure, um, many people think it's going to be the sort of launch pad for universal basic income, which is the kind of as big a social protection thing as you can. Yeah. Think. What? Did, how do you think it's going to pan out in terms of mm. studied social protection for decades? Mm. What impact do you think the COVID response and the COVID crisis as a kind of critical juncture in policy terms, what impact do you think it's going to have? You're asking me to look into the future. Of course, you're an economist. Yes. No, 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 no. I, I established that I wasn't. I try and explain things. I don't predict. Fair enough. But I think, I think there are lessons we should have learned from the past. The lessons we should have learned when safety nets came in after structural adjustment, you know, the idea of vulnerability, the concept of vulnerability came onto the development discourse. And by vulnerability, it meant that you shouldn't just be aiming your safety nets at the very poorest, but at people who are vulnerable to becoming poor, who were called the newly poor, you know, that when you are cutting back on public sector employment, People who had permanent jobs were now poor. So anyone could become poor. And that contained within it a promise of inclusiveness and universalism. Rather than just means testing for the very poor, let's look at forms of social protection that allow for the fact that anyone can be vulnerable to downward mobility. So that was the lesson I thought we had learned then came the East Asian financial crisis. And we all knew that- 1998, East, roughly. 98, yeah. yes. And, you know, East Asia was the model of growth. You know, everybody was trying to model themselves on East Asia. And suddenly we have this amazing crisis. They have no safety nets in place because they believe that the family was the safety net. But it was clear that in a context of generalized crisis, families are under strain. And so one of the lessons we learned from the East Asian crisis is we need ex-ante social protection. We need it before the fact, not after the fact. You don't start scrabbling around putting things in place in the middle of a pandemic or a crisis, right? You should have it in place and you should be able to scale it up to meet the needs of the moment. And this is where Kerala has been so wonderful. You know, they have spent 24 years investing in broad-based public health. So when the time came, the pandemic came, the rest of India is in disarray, but Kerala has been able to avoid the level of deaths and tragedies that we're seeing in the rest of India. So Kerala is a really good example of having social protection that can be scaled up in place. And then we had the global financial crisis, 2008. And we had two pathways in front of us. We had stimulus, you know, revive the economy through public expenditure or austerity, cut back on public expenditure, save money and so on. And of course, as you know, Britain went for austerity and we are paying the price. You know, we ran down our public health service. We ran down our social services. We ran down shelters for women who are suffering from violence. We ran those things down. And now we are doing worse than anyone else in Europe because I suspect we ran our social protection, our welfare state, 
far further down than anyone else. So we have the option now, austerity or stimulus. And I think, you know, universal basic income is a part of a stimulus package. It's a part of putting demand into people's pockets so that they can start buying and so on. But I would worry if stimulus was only about bailing out the banks as we did after the financial crisis. And one of the pieces of work that the Women's Budget Group have been doing here in Britain is pointing out that if you want to invest in infrastructure as part of the stimulus package, you would be better off investing in the care economy because you would be generating far more jobs than you would if you were investing in physical infrastructure. It's not an either or, but I think we need to bear in mind that if this crisis, if COVID has taught us one thing, is suddenly the people that we have put on the lowest wages, the unskilled or the semi-skilled workers are our essential workers. So and I, I think the stimulus package should be about investing in the care economy okay. in order that all the other pandemics that are going to come in the future, and this is not the last one, we will be prepared for it. And I hope that it will be universal, broad-based, and I hope that we will have it in place now rather than waiting for the crisis to happen. So, Nalika, you skillfully avoided making predictions, um, which I'm very impressed by. You also talk like an economist, which is kind of interesting. Um, and uh, I thought that was a very uplifting and inspiring uh, pitch for making COVID-19 into something that makes the world a better place. Uh, thank you very much for coming on, Zooming In. I'm sure we could carry on much longer. But uh, for the moment, we're going to have to say goodbye. Thank you very much. Thank you. And bye-bye.